Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago. Uh, my co-host, uh, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings, uh, is not going to be able to join us today. I know Rob really wanted to be here, and you'll find out why in a minute. Uh, but unfortunately, um, he has a little bit of business that popped up at the last minute, and uh, although we don't always like to say business comes first, in this case it did. Uh, so we will carry on without uh, Rob Hunt this week. Uh, wish him a good week and look forward to catching up with him next week when we have even uh, another amazing guest who we'll tell you about at the end of the show today. Uh, but first of all, we're going to focus on what we have today. Uh, you know, last week we had Terry Haggerty, who uh, was a true uh, musical legend, and you know how exciting it was to have him. And you'd think that it's kind of hard to top that for, you know, just a regular mom and pop podcast like us. But, uh, you know, things work in mysterious ways. And I've talked about my cool cousin Brent a number of times on this show because Lord knows he and I shared many of these deadhead moments together. But one of the things I like about cool cousin Brent is that he forgets a lot of shit. And when we're talking the other day and we're talking about the podcast, he says to me very casually, did I ever tell you that I grew up with Rob Koritz? And I said, Dark Star Orchestra, Rob Koritz? He says, yeah. I said, no, Cool Cousin Brent, you never told me that. How could you never tell me that? So Cool Cousin Brent pivoted on a dime. He put in a call to Rob. Uh, Rob uh, could not be any more gracious in making time for us. And ladies and gentlemen, our guest on our show today is Rob Koritz of Dark Star Orchestra, one of the drummers. Um, and before we even get to him, let's set the moment, Dan. And if you could run that uh, first clip of the day for us, that would be great. Okay, so for folks at home that are listening to that, you probably automatically tune in and say, oh, that's a drums. That's a drums segment from Any Grateful Dead show. And you might otherwise be right because it sounds exactly like it. Uh, but it's not. It's Dark Star Orchestra. And with me, as I said, today is Rob Quartz, the drummer who was just participating in that drum solo uh, from the Palladium uh, on March 10th, 19, uh, 2022. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing great. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, this is like, uh, this is big time for us. You know, we, we love talking about the dead. Uh, my, my partner, Rob Hunt, who's not with us today, we, we like to style ourselves as dead nerds, right? And we just sit about talking, you know, talking the fine details that most deadheads probably never even bother to get into. Uh, I don't know about that. You're not alone out there, man. There's plenty of them. <laughs> oh, and you know what? On this podcast, we've certainly discovered that. There's no question about it. And, you know, it's nice to know the people who are out there. Some folks call in and, you know, we hear questions from people and it, it just displays a, a depth of knowledge that always amazes me that there's so many people so devoted to this band and its music and what a great job you guys are doing in, in preserving it and carrying it forward. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Hey, let me ask you. So I got a lot of things I want to talk to you about today. Um, but, you know, this is the thing that's on everybody's mind. At least it's on my mind. When did you get into the dead and, and where did Dark Star Orchestra come from? Okay, well, it's two separate questions. The first one, when did I get into the dead? 
Um, I'll make a long story short. My senior year in high school is 1987. Um, I know a little bit about the dead. I know Casey Jones, you know, and maybe trucking, but I'm really not into that whole tie-dye hippie thing at that point. You know, I'm a preppy preppy kid in the suburbs of of St. Louis. And uh, one night, um, a friend of mine's parents were out of town, and uh, we were all hanging out at his house and partying really hard. And uh, I'll be honest, you know, I took a bunch of mushrooms that night, and um, I was – it's like two in the morning at this point. I'm under a blanket on a couch, just kind of listening to the music and whatever. And what came on, unbeknownst to me at the time, what came on was not fade away. And it was ending a show and the drums are going and I'm a drummer. And all of a sudden the band is gone, but the crowd is still singing it and clapping it. And I think that's the coolest thing ever. And then the band comes back and joins them. And plays it for another 30 seconds before they go into the encores. They did a lot back then. And I was just like, holy shit, who is that? And and my friend said, that's the Grateful Dead. I was like, no way. That's the Grateful Dead? He's like, yeah, go, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. And he's like, well, they're playing in Chicago next week. Do you want to go? And I was like, yeah, I want to go. And it was the it was the UIC Pavilion, April of 87, just the next week. And of course, at that show, they closed the show with Not Fade Away, and we all clapped and sang it, and the band came back out and joined us, just like I heard on the tape. So I thought they did that every show. You know, I mean, I just, I don't know anything about the day. I was at that show. Well, great. That was my first show, 411-87. That was an amazing show. All three of those shows were great. So I had, you know, I had, I just thought that's what they did, you know, every show. And But this, this whole, first of all, just the strength of the drums at the end of that. And then this whole communal thing of the band and the leaving and the crowd takes it over and the band comes back and they do it together. You know, this, that symbiotic relationship between the band and, and the fans just, that's what hooked me right there. And, um, that summer I went away and worked at summer camp and I was leaving for college on my way to college. I stopped in Telluride to see him there. I'm going to school, <laughs> I'm going to school in Arizona and Tucson I had to be out there early for marching band camp. The day after I get there, they're playing at Compton Terrace. I go there. Then we started st- skipping school on the weekends to fly to California and see him in Long Beach and, and wherever. So, And I got hooked hard right around then, you know. And like anybody, young kid who gets into it at that point, you know, for the next couple of years, that's all I was going to listen to. Nothing else mattered. You know, listen to this. This is all that stuff sucks. It's the dead, you know, and just... <laughs> totally immersed myself like so many people did back then. You know, it was, it was odd that, you know, I didn't, I got into it right at that touch of gray time, but it wasn't because of touch of gray and in the dark, you know, I got into it because I heard a bootleg that was so cool. It just happened to be at the same time that in the dark came out and all hell broke loose and everything just blew up, you know? Right. And, uh, as far as dark star goes, so that's my story, how I got into the dead. Um, as far as Dark Star goes, I was here in St. Louis playing in Grateful Dead cover bands all for years, you know, and uh, I had stopped that. I quit. I shouldn't say quit. I left the band I was in in like 97. was still a prof- professional musician, but it kind of just left the dead world. But really, really missed it. I'd listen to the dead and go, damn, I wish I was still playing this stuff, you know. Um, and uh, But I'd moved on. And then in 99, I got a call from the other drummer that I had been in the band with here in St. Louis. 
And he told me about this band that they needed a drummer and he was trying to get the job. And, and while he was trying to get the job for reasons I won't go into, they ended up needing two drummers. And he's like, well, I've got this guy that I've been playing with for the last three or four years. I don't know what he's doing now, but maybe he'll want to do it. So Dino called me up. I owe it all to Dino, my drumming partner in, in, in DSO still. So Dino calls up and says, hey, there's this band out of Chicago, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, man, I don't know. Let me talk to them and, you know, see what's up. And we're turning 30. Got to start thinking about the future a little more. Can't just run off and join a band unless it's being done right, you know? So I called the keyboard player, Scott Larned, who's not with us anymore, but it was his, you know, he was in charge of the whole thing. And I called him with just a ton of questions, mostly business stuff. How are you running it? How are you traveling? How are you paying? How are you organized? You know, it's time to kind of act like adults. We were on the phone for like two hours. He answered every question right. So uh, I said, yeah, you know, this might be something that could work for a couple of years. It might be fun. So Dino and I drove up. We put all our drums, both drum sets, in the back of his pickup truck, crammed them in there, drove up to Chicago to play at Martyrs on Lincoln there. And they told us what show we'd play ahead of time, so we listened to it on the way up and everything. We have never met them. We just show up at Martyrs and, okay, nice to meet you guys. Let's play a show. And we did it. And when it was over, they looked at us and said, when can you start? So uh, Dino started a tour before me because the other drummer that was leaving still had some time before he was going to go. So Dino started in like late April, May of 99. And I started in like June of 99 and thought it would be fun for a couple of years. You know, my, I guess I started in July. My 10th day in the band, we're playing at the Fillmore in San Francisco, and I'm looking at Dino going, how did I get here, man? You know, a week ago, I was playing in the in in the window on Del Mar Boulevard down on the loop. <laughs> and, you know, now I'm playing at the Fillmore and say, how'd this happen? And and I thought it would work for a couple of years, and that was 1999, and now it's 2022, and here we are. So I guess it did work out, you know? That's that's just amazing. It, it's, it's a great, both of your stories are great. The, the first story about becoming a deadhead sounds like, you know, just about every deadhead I know heard one, two songs that turned them on. They went to a show and they were hooked. Um, but, you know, but you took it a step further, and that's what's so amazing. It's, you know, we all sit there writing, you know, go home afterwards and listen and pick up our pencils and pretend. But you had a drumming background before all of this, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I started taking drum lessons, I think when I was my seventh birthday, I really wanted to be a drummer. I knew I wanted to be. And for my seventh birthday, my parents got me a snare drum and six months of drum lessons and we'll see how it goes. And, uh, you know, I stayed with it obviously in, in, in high school, which I think was probably the same high school you went to, if I had to guess. Um, Parkway Central? No, I went to Ladue. Okay, next door. Oh, I um, went to Ladue, yep. I, I just got, because I know Brent went to Parkway Central. Yeah, he did. We knew each other from camp. That's how Brent and I became friends. Um, so I went to the same high school you did, ironically, and I was in the marching band, every musical group you could be in there. I went off to college, and when it was time to go to college, it wasn't a question, what are you going to study? I'm going to study music. So I went to the University of Arizona and was in a classical music program there for two and a half years. Decided that wasn't my path. Uh, took some time off. That went went to Europe with some friends. That oddly coincided with the Grateful Dead tour of Europe in 1990. Wow. So saw a bunch of shows over there. And then came back to when I came back to the States, came back to St. Louis where I lived, you know, where I grew up and went to a school here called Webster University. Sure. And and ended up getting my degree in jazz studies instead of classical. Wow. That is very cool. 
you, you said you're driving up for your first show and you're and and by the way, we used to go see you guys at Martyrs all the time. That like became standard right Tuesday night <laughs> stuff. Yep. And and yeah, man. And and I to me. It was, you know, I had been seeing the dead. I saw them starting in early 82 and saw them, you know, I was at the last show and I was always searching after that for something, you know, we caught the other ones and then the Terrapin family reunion and, and all of that was great, but it was very sporadic and there wasn't a whole lot to do. And all of a sudden there was you guys and you would go to see you and it's the same thing like with the Dave's picks, right? When they first started coming out with Dick's picks, they wouldn't release whole shows, just little pieces here and there. And then they finally, you know, acknowledged the concept of releasing the entire show and I, you know, I used to go see Jake's Leg in St. Louis. I, I, maybe that was one of the bands you played with. I'm playing with him next week, actually. I'm doing a gig for him next week. I love Jake. I mean, you know what? I saw them in St. Louis at 20 North. Yep, I was down there. That, that That's kind of where I cut my teeth on it. We saw them. I went to law school at the University of Missouri in Columbia. They were always down there. But they just played songs. They played them really well, and I enjoyed it. But the idea that you guys were playing an entire show start to finish was just so appealing to me to be able to hear all of it in context and whatever. And I was just, you know, really blown away by it the first time I saw you guys. And, you know, not unlike seeing the dead for the first time, but with this idea that there was these guys out there who, you know, had Donna when it was a Donna night, you know, you had, you had all of it going just the way it was supposed to be. And I loved the attention to detail. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. It's a, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. I mean, it still is even now, you know, with the, to, to pay attention to the details, you know, it, it, it's, you know, people sometimes don't realize or forget that, you know, 99% of what we're doing up there is still improvised, you know, cause everything they did was improvised. And the only things that aren't are the, the verses basically of the songs, you know, but right. there's so much detail in that, the groove, the tempo, the arrangement, you know, that we do have to put in a lot of still now put in our time and listen to it that day and, and study not, the notes they played but how they played them you know and then while remembering that then forget all of that at the same time i know that doesn't sound right but remember that but forget it all at the same time so you can still go out there and improvise and create and be original see to me that's that's just amazing so so when you're listening to them you're not literally listening to every drum beat trying to recreate that you're trying to get a sense of the tempo and the way they're playing it and to recreate it on a, on a larger scale like that yeah in fact you know everybody in the band even me and dino everybody in the band listens on their own we don't ever listen to it rarely do we listen to anything together um because everybody's listening to different stuff you know i mean i don't listen to the whole show when i play it that day if, if I really study the show that day, it takes me about 40 minutes, you know, because I want to listen to, okay, in, in Cassie did to, or any of them, and me and my uncle today, are they playing it in halftime or double time? So we get that vibrate. Okay, it's 78. They're probably playing my, me and my uncle in halftime, but let me just make sure, you know. Well, you know, for me, it was always they love each other, right, which is always the same except for 1973. That's faster with that bumpy bridge in it. I love that version. Right. <laughs> And I actually love that version, and yeah, I'm so too. sorry that they never played it again. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff you – I mean, if you're going to pick up a, a 73, you got to go through the set list and make sure you know how they were playing it at that time. Yep. Um, I think a really good example of that, for especially for what we do, and all of us will listen to it, again, separately, but is Slipknot. Ah. Because that thing changed over the years so many ways. There's minutia inside the Slipknot. Sometimes there was a bar of 5-4. Sometimes there wasn't a bar of 5-4. So – that very much changed a lot over the years. So if we're going to do a slipknot that night, we're usually 
almost always going to listen to it just to make sure we do the right arrangement. We're still going to play it our way, right. but we want the arrangement to be proper for the era. And, and you know, right before we got on the air, you guys are going to be going to Europe this October, yes, to recreate part of the Europe 72 tour? In September, yeah. We had originally, yeah, we are. We're really excited. We had originally wanted to do it back in May and try and match up the dates and do them 50 years to the day. Um, because you have to book things so early and so far in advance, when they were looking at May, the promoters over there weren't quite sure where we were going to be COVID wise, you know, if we'd be ready to be in the rooms in May. So we're going in September, which, you know, whatever. Um, uh, in London, for example, we're playing the London show at the Olympia theater where they originally played it. Wow. Um, wow. So we're going to do the, in, 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 in England, we're playing at the, uh, in, in Shepherd's Bush where, where they played at one point. And then we're going to do three, that's two. We're doing nine shows, one in London, one in Paris, four in Germany. And then we're going to go to Italy where the dead never went, but we had a, some really good offers and some really good interest. Wow. So we're going to go to Italy. And, and when we're in Italy, we can play the Belgium show and the Amsterdam show and some of the shows, you know. Right, exactly. Oh, that's, a, you know, when you talk about um, uh, the, the Paris show, you know, I just think of that May 4th Paris show was the like hour long dark star. You know, that just goes on and on and on forever. And to me, we, we just played it actually. Right. That's a tune that, yes, they had. Okay. So for instance, in 69, like when I listened to the Fillmore shows right at the very beginning, they have that instrument. To me, it sounds like they're twisting something and it's making kind of like a, but you only hear that in the 69 shows, you know, by the 70, they drop that. I'm looking back at our records real quick because I think that's the show that we put. What was the date on that one? May 4th, I think. Okay, because we just did one from April 8th that had a monster dark star, and we did that 50 years to the day. Well, the the whole tour, right? It, it, like every other night, they were either playing a really long dark star jam or a really long other one jam. And I think a f- couple of nights they played them both. But Right. That's the one drag about, the only drag about doing this tour, that Europe 70 tour will be, you know, it's a lot of the same songs every night. Right. But, yes. you know, who cares? We're doing it in Europe. It's fine by me. But now let me ask you this question, though. Europe 72, they only had one drummer. Right. When we do the one drummer shows now, I mean, you know, we do them, we've been doing one drummer shows for probably since 2001. Um, so because of that, we alternate those shows. So in, in, in essence, I really get the best of both worlds because most of the time I'm playing the Mickey Hart style, which I love, the, the world rhythms and tribal beats. But then maybe once a tour or twice a tour, I get to use my jazz chops a little more and think channel my Elvin Jones and Billy and be on the Billy side. So in the nine shows we're doing over there, yeah, I'm only going to play half of them and Dina will play half of them. Wow. So there, there's so much just in that, which you just told me, but... And I heard what you said about, you know, jazz versus a tribal beat, you know, but for those of us who've been going to shows forever and, and I'm not a trained musician, but I'm, I'm always a guy who loves drums. You know, everybody goes to the bathroom. I hang out for drums. I think it's great. Thank you. But I, it, <laughs> it, it, it's hard for me sometimes, you know, I mean, I see them up there, but a guy like you, who's, who's trained in all of this, what's the really distinguishing features that a guy like me might hear that distinguishes Bill from Mickey in the middle of a song? During a song? Um, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, you know, I mean, these are big generalities because a lot of it might've changed from 69 to 76 to 95. You know, some of those things changed because their playing styles evolved and changed, but by and large, I think that the general guideline you could use there is 
Billy is first and foremost, Billy is much more the timekeeper and might be playing a lot simpler, but definitely playing a lot straighter. And I don't mean to, to the musicians who are hearing this. I don't mean not jazzy and not bouncy and swingy, but just playing a straighter rhythm, just keeping the band together where Mickey is definitely more textural and, and, and colorful and, and, and filling in, literally filling in. Like if you go back to, you know, 69, a lot of that time, Billy's playing drum kit and Mickey's playing gongs or a weiro making a sound, you know. Then in the 70s, they're both playing drum sets, but their roles are a little different, you know. Um, again, you know, Mickey's playing a lot more toms and, and, and putting all that flair in there. Late 80s is a great example of that with these big tom fills. And, and Mickey, or Billy rather, is still giving you a lot more of your kick, your kick drum, your bass drum, your snare, and your hi-hat and keeping the time. Now, that's not to say they both don't do those other things, because Billy definitely plays the toms, and Mickey definitely had a kick drum for all those years and, and played groove as well. But those would just be the biggest generalities between the two of them. So maybe you can answer the, the question on a broader scale for the dead, but certainly for you and Dino when you're guys playing. People always like to talk about the musical conversation that's going on with the dead. And, you know, my, my very... Uh, untrained understanding of that means that you know jerry can hit a note or bobby can play something a certain way or phil can drop a a, a bass line and all of a sudden they all know that they're going to go in a certain direction and you know and and it but is there a is there a, a second kind of under the surface conversation going on between the two drummers always always in in any music especially improvisational music you have to have what we call big ears your ears always have to be open listening to everybody to be able to do what you just said, to be able to turn on a dime and take it a different direction. And, and we have to do that. But when you have two drummers, it's harder to move it that way. It's harder to change those directions. That's why a lot of people really prefer the one drummer era of the dead. That's some of their favorite stuff because it could turn and change directions quicker than it can with two drummers. It's a, it's a bigger machine, you know, it's a bigger engine. Um, so Yes, you have to have the big ears, but when there's two drummers, the I have to listen to the other drummer first before I listen to anybody else in the band. And Dino does too, just to make sure that we're not walking on top of each other or doing the exact same thing. Or as some guy from the New York Times or the New Yorker once called it, when the dead's drummers, they call it sneakers in a dryer. <laughs> and you're trying to trying to avoid the sneakers in a dryer. You know, you sure. want to right together. So you definitely have to listen to each other. We've been playing together so long, though, because you know, we played together for three or four years before Dark Stars. We've been playing together 25 plus years. We, at this point, and Billy and Mickey are the same, or, and Jay Lane now, I'm sure, is learning that as he plays with Mickey. We pretty much know where each other are going to go most of the time at this point. You say you know where each other is going to go, but does that mean that you also understand it in the context of like the particular show that Mickey's going to go off in this direction and you're going to go off in that direction? Or I mean, Dino, of course, but you know. Yes, but when you get to the improvisation, you still it's still improv, so we can't really compare it to Billy and Mickey. We both know our styles are based on them because they're our drumming heroes. Right. Um, but, you know, like Dino and I, an example would be, and this is getting kind of musically nerdy and technical, but a lot of times when I play a Tom Phil, just the way my playing style works, a lot of times when I play a Tom Phil, I end on beat four. So it'd be doom, tick doom, tick doom, doom, doom. And Dino's tendency is to finish that fill because he likes his tendencies to play after the four. So we might play a fill where it's doom, tick doom, tick doom, doom, doom. And then you hear Dino go, ba da da, and take us back in. 
you know, and we just kind of know that that's going to happen now. So since we know each other's tendencies and know each other's strengths and know each other's weaknesses, we still have to listen to each other, but we're comfortable enough that that gives us the ability to listen to the other guys a little bit more and be able to start being ready to recognize, hey, we're going to turn here and shake this jam to a completely different place. Okay. I, I read something once, and, and this is just very novice of me, but I, it, it struck me, and they talked about a Grateful Dead style of drumming, 110 beats per minute. I don't know. I mean, that that has nothing to do with it. I mean, that that's a tempo, sure, but not every Grateful Dead song is 110 beats per minute, so it really doesn't matter. Take a song like uh, take, take They Love Each Other, what we talked about, you know? One year, it's do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Next year, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. So... That, you know, one might have been 110 beats, and the next time was 160 beats. You just never know. You know it's not. It's not like bands that are out there. I mean, and there are bands out there who the drummer has a metronome for each song. Hey, we're playing this song at this tempo, and he sets it. He looks at it. Tick, tick, tick. One, two, three, four. So they, you know, with the Grateful Dead, it's whoever's starting the song. First of all, the, the drummers never got to decide a tempo in their lives. Never got to decide the tempo. What about when they always say drummer's choice? Yeah, but they still can't count the tempo off because uh, if you listen to a Grateful Dead song, whoever's singing that song is always the one you see going one, two, one, two, three, four. So it's where wherever Jerry liked it that night, wherever Bobby liked it that night. You know, so eyes of the world could be faster tonight than it was three nights ago. Or it could be slower three nights from now. You just never know. So the other question that, that occurs to me from that is, and I know sometimes you guys just play your own sets where you just pull your with the songs that you want to play. Now, on the nights when you do that, do you always have prearranged set lists or will you sometimes just, you know, whoever goes off into a tune and try to recreate that actual? That's a, that's a great question, too. Um, when we first decided to start doing our own set lists, we call, we call them electives. When we first decided to start doing the electives, they were really a rare occasion. Now we do them about 30% of the time. Uh, when we first did them, we did them without a net, without a set list. And we found ourselves sometimes taking way too long between songs, trying to decide what to play next. No, I don't want to play that. Oh, I do. Let's do this. Nah, you know. So now, yes, we we do write out that set list ahead of time. Now, sometimes it changes because of the clock on the wall. Well, let's take that one out. Or the other night, they put together a set list on the last night of tour. They put together a really good elective set list. And Skip, our bass player, said, what? There's no song. I'm not singing any songs. And he wasn't too heavy about that. So we changed on the fly before the end of the night. Skip sang like five songs. I just threw them all at him now. You wanted to sing, pal. Here you go. Um, so it can change. But we we do start with a – we have to start with a roadmap or we'll just – we're not quick enough on our feet to decide what we're going to play next. So does that really speak either A – to the incredible skill set of the Grateful Dead or the incredible patience of the dead fan sitting there while Jerry would be up on stage smoking a cigarette, sometimes, you know, three or four minutes between songs. You know, I mean, and we still take that much time sometimes. Um, Sure. I think it's both, but to be honest, I know for a fact that there was plenty of times when they knew what they were going to play before they went on stage, mostly in second sets, not in first sets. I mean, I've seen matchbooks that had Jerry had written, help slip Frank, you know, then this, this, where they kind of knew what they were going to do. Um, and, and, and even though they ran without a set list, they still kind of knew what they were going to do. Because if you look at the set list, you hear Scarlet every three or four nights, you'd hear eyes every three or four nights, you know? So even if they didn't have a set list, there was some kind of formula to it so that they wouldn't repeat the same songs, you know? 
So, although I saw the uh, the three shows at Red Rocks in June of 1984, and the first night the encore was U.S. Blues. Right. Two nights later, the Sunday night show was June 14th. It was Flag Day. So Bobby came out and said, well, sorry about you guys who were here Friday, but this is Flag Day. And they played U.S. Blues again, you know, and I was like, okay, you know, they, they do that stuff sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it would happen. I think it might have even been in Chicago somewhere, maybe at the Rosemont, where the first night they played Jack Rowe and the third night they played Jack Rowe. You know, I mean, it's going to happen, you know, but by and large... You see five shows, you're not going to see maybe one or two songs more than once. Right. No, which is, you know, what I would always tell my friends. Well, how can you go see 10 shows? Because there are 10 different shows. You you have to go see it to believe it. And one of the things we talked about on this show a while back, we had a day where we just focused on Scarlet Fire performances. And right on. One of my favorites was, I forget what it was, 88 or 89, when they played at the Rosemont Horizon and they opened the show with Scarlet Fire. Nice. And I had brought along two of my roommates who were very, very skeptical about all of this and, you know, thought it was just a big hippie convention. And I'm thinking, you know, if they come out tonight with like, I don't know, uh, Mississippi half step into uh, greatest story, which are tunes that I love, but aren't necessarily tunes that are going to grab you by the balls the first time you go. And all it's like Jerry knew they came out, they played. Scar- These guys fell in love with it. They could not believe it. Right. That's the best. That's the best. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, in Scarlet, Scarlet Fire, you know, not so much Fire, but Scarlet is one that changed radically over the years as well. You know, when it started, when it came in in 74, it was a one drummer and it had this super funk thing. Billy, there's no rhyme or reason to what he's playing, but it's so damn cool. Um, I was just talking about this with a buddy of mine, Chopper, the other day. And then, you know, it straightened out for a while in, in 76, 77. And then they doubled up the time. And then it changed, you know, that one just was always changing, Scarlet. You know, which is great because, again, it keeps it fresh for them and for the audience over the course of, what, 30-plus years. Now, when you guys are just on a regular tour, meaning not like a Europe 72 tour where you have the whole thing themed out, will you, but before you hit the road, you'll decide which shows you're going to play or will you just kind of decide that on a night-by-night basis? When we first started, we did it on a night-by-night basis. And again, it was too difficult to do. Um on the breaks, when we're not on the road, we have one person who does it. Um, if we all try to put in our two cents, we never agree on a show. So one person does it, and there's a huge method to the madness. Um, it's not an easy job at all. I did it for a while. I hated it. How big is the stage? What did we play the last time we were there? What are we playing tonight? What are we playing tomorrow night? Because we don't want to do the repeat thing either. Um, hey, it's July 12th. Is there a July 12th show? Or, hey, we're in columbus ohio is there a columbus ohio show but i mean the number one thing that dictates what we're going to do is how big is the stage okay and and so like i you know when i think of stage size i think of comparison like on the small side the capitol theater in port chester and on the large or the fillmore maybe and on the large size like uh the syracuse carrier dome (laughs) right and for a band like the grateful dead you're nailing it knock it down about four or five pegs where you get to us and the Capitol is the big stage. Right. But, but that's interesting though, because you know, I guess, although I guess in 71 to the dead, it probably felt like a big stage too. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Cause they're just starting to grow, you know, and they're not playing at Merrimack community college anymore in St. Louis. They're playing Merrimack, at the Fox I, theater. When I got old enough and I, they played at Merrimack community. I can't, and isn't that crazy? <laughs> I, I, I was five years too late to miss all of the Fox theater stuff. You know, I just, 
yeah, but that's the difference right there, you know, between those two stages. So yep. if we're on a stage in some tiny club, which we're trying to avoid these days, but if we're on some st- tiny little stage in some tiny club in Des Moines, Iowa, we can't bring out the B3 and all the big drums and two drum sets. You know, that's going to be a one drummer show. Or if the stage is just big enough for two drums, maybe we'll do a 69 that night. You know, it just depends. So it all depends on how big the stage is. That's where it starts when we decide what shows we're going to do. So how, how would you, in that context, what would you consider Martyr's stage? For us now? <laughs> I mean, back then. Well, now, right. It's, uh, then it was perfect. Yeah, for us now, that's a tiny little stage. We can do two drummers, but we couldn't put up all the big drums. And we did back in the day, but our setup's gotten a lot bigger since back then as well. Let me ask you really quick about the Hammond B3. Um, I was just listening to David Gann's show the other day, the the Tales from the Golden Road. And um, they were asked, somebody called in to talk about Vince. And the the whole conversation got around to the fact that Vince kind of got short shrifted by the dead because they wouldn't let him play the Hammond B3. And that Jerry decided, or Phil, some one of them decided that, you know, no, we're done with the Hammond B3. We're going to move on to something else. Yeah. Not not only did he get short, if you want to call it that, sh- short-sighted because he didn't get the Hammond B3. In actuality, Vince really didn't even get to pick his own sounds. That's what they were saying, that that uh, Bob Bravelove was, was mixing them all in the back. You know, Bravelove's sitting under the stage with the, the bank of sounds and feeding him what he's going to play. So he doesn't even know what sound is going to come out of the keyboard. Don't pray what presses a button. So he was, yeah, he had some, uh, he was on a short leash as far as not what he could play, but what he would sound like. Right. And that's too bad. I, you know, I know everybody's different. The funniest thing for me was when I went to visit my brother in college in 91 and I walked into his dorm room and they were listening to one of these Syracuse shows that I was at in 82. And I was like, Oh, I was at that show you saw Brent Midland. Oh my God. You know, and, and I, I just kind of took it for granted that I saw Brent, you know, I felt that way about Keith or about Pigpen. Um, yeah, sure. But I don't know that anybody ever felt that way about Vince. And that's too bad. Cause I loved Vince. I thought he was, I thought their shows sometimes in the nineties, I know they were slowing down a little bit, but I was at Las Vegas in 92 and they just killed it. He was awesome. I saw some great shows in the nineties, you know, I mean, it's, Yes, they were slowing down. Jerry was definitely not on firing on all cylinders. Um, but there was definitely some great shows in the 90s. I'm going to tell you a quick story, if you don't mind. Um, no, go ahead. This is years ago. We're playing in Colorado, and this is when Billy was, Bill Kreisman was kind of on his art kick and was putting out a lot, a lot of art. And we happened to be playing Fort Collins or Boulder or somewhere the same night as he had a gallery opening there. Um, so after the show, we went over the gallery. We're hanging out. And he said to me, you know, I know at the end we weren't firing on all cylinders. We were missing a piston. And he was speaking directly about Garcia, you know, because he wasn't all there, he said. But every night there was at least three minutes, at least. Some nights it was the whole night. But every night there was at least three minutes that were still what it was supposed to be and what it used to be. And for me, that was worth it to stay out there for those three minutes a night. That's amazing. And that's wonderful. And I – yeah. I love Bill Kreutzmann. I, you know, he was just, yeah, me too. He was another guy that, you know, in my opinion, never quite got all the attention that he deserved. But I, you know, going back and reading the early days of the dead and his relationship with Jerry from way back. And that's great. I'm, I, I, I you know, that makes me happy to hear that kind of thing. Did, I, I saw, um, 
some pictures that either you must have sent to Brent and he sent to me, but you were, you were, you were on stage with Mickey before were you ever on stage with Bill. Um, oh yeah. Bill, Bill was actually the first, uh, well, I guess Donna was the very first one to play with us, but uh, actually it's right here. Billy's Billy sat in with us two or three times over the years. Not very much, but this, I don't know if you'll be able to see that or not. That's uh, 2002, I guess. And that's the first time Billy sat in with us. Uh, look how you look how young we both look in that picture, me and Billy. It's a, well, so what do you do when you're sitting there and all of a sudden Bill Kreutzman is, is sitting next to you drumming? Try not to shit my pants and play. Well, at least back then, you know, as I'm as I'm getting to know these guys and I'm much younger, try not to shit my pants and stay the hell out of the way. Right. You know, wow. Be as respectful as you can, but still play. You know, um, same thing when I played with Mickey. You know, just that was a whole different ball game because I'm. Well, I, I, you know, I used to read the stories about, you know, Mickey had kind of a, a reputation of being a little bit tough on the roadies from time to time and a level of, of perfection that was often hard to meet. He was a bit cantankerous, you know, you can't, uh, you can, you can take the East Coaster out of the West, out, out of New York, but you can't take the New York out of the guy. You know what I mean? He's, he's the East Coaster all the way. I've never had anything but great relationship with Mickey. He's always been nothing but gracious, but of course I've heard the stories and I've seen it. Yeah, he wants it the way he wants it, and it better be that way. And it's he's he's an amazing guy. He's gracious. He's generous. But if you're a crew member for him, it can be tough. Wow. So here's a question that I want to ask, and not so much. It's none of my business, and I don't want to get into the the underlying whys and hows. But for us, the Deadheads, when when further tapped John Catalastic to come join them, and and further, we all kind of looked at it as like. Oh my God! Here's this guy in AAA baseball, and he's getting a, a call up to the big leagues. You know, now, but at the same time, we wondered, what does this do to DSO? So that I mean, is that's a proud moment for you, I assume, but it's also a difficult moment. Of course, it was. Um, you know, yes, you have to go. Why wouldn't? Of course, I mean, it wasn't a question. Of course, he was going to go, but. He went with the full support of us. Of course, anybody who's going to get called up to the show, you got, you know. I'd be happy if it had been me. Hell yeah. See you guys later. And they would have been happy for me, you know? Um, well, now when you say get called up to the show, it has a whole new meaning. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so he got called up to the bigs and it, it was great for him. You know, it lasted for a while and led to some other stuff for him. You know, he's, he's still out there. He's playing with Melvin now. So yeah, of course you have to be, you can't be anything but happy for a guy in your band when that happens. Was it a little bit scary? Sure. Um, we knew there was other guys out there, you know, I mean, of course we knew Jeff, we already knew Jeff, hell, Barack, who had lived with him for 10 years and played in a band with him. And we tried out a couple guys, Stu Allen came and did a bunch of shows with us. We, uh, decided to go with Jeff. We're still great friends with Stu. He just actually subbed for Jeff on a, on a private party a few months ago. I'm not supposed to talk about it because <laughs> we do a private here and there. Um, Right. Understood. You know, but we went with Jeff and we knew he was going to be more than up to the task. He's a killer player. The, the, the toughest part about it was when you change a major band member like that, you're going to get a crowd who at first is going to be skeptical. And it just so happened. It happened in 2009, right when the economy went in the tank. Those two things coupled together for us as, as an organization, you know, bringing in a new guy who we know is going to crush it. But, you know, I'll be honest, a lot of people came to see John, and now John's playing with another band, so they're going to see them. Oh, and the economy's shit, so I only have so much money to spend. We first time I saw him was at the um, those auditorium theater shows, 
And, you know, they, we kept waiting for him to take the lead. And then he jumped out on Must Have Been the Roses. And we were like, wow, wow, this is good. And, and they covered Hurricane that night, too, Bob Dylan's Hurricane, which he, and he covered it. I thought it was great. You know, they kept, I mean, John did a great, I don't want to talk too much about it, but he did a great job with it. Um, they, they definitely had expectations of his role. You know, he, he's, he, they weren't going to give him free reign, especially, you know, at that point. He did a great job with it, but he was in a, he's in a tough situation too, you know, where he had to, I can understand where any of us would have been, you know, if I'd come in and been with the new drummer, who knows if they would have let me play the way I want to play. They might want me to play the way they want me to play. And you just have to do it. <laughs> no, I, I can imagine that's, that's gotta be a tough situation. And look, you know, the dead have been post Jerry, you know, there's been a lot of trading off at that lead guitar position. I you know Jimmy Herring did it for a while. I thought he was really great. Um, I thought John did a great job with it, you know, and, and now we've got John Mayer, you know, and everybody's got their opinions on him, but generally I think he does a decent job. And, you know, I, I enjoyed my shows at uh, Wrigley field a couple of weeks ago when he was there. And, you know, it, to me, it's just great. You go, you get the whole gathering of the tribe, 40,000 folks and, you know, they're doing their thing. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, <laughs> I, I do know this about John. I know that he loves it or he wouldn't be doing it. He wouldn't be doing it instead of his solo tours. I know he puts in the work. He studies this shit. Like you wouldn't believe he loves the stuff. Um, you know, I'm friends with a couple of guys, really good friends with a couple of the guys in that band. And I know for a fact, John works his ass off on it. I went and saw him I, last year was the first time I ever saw him live. I went and saw them, I guess right before Wrigley here in St. Louis. That was the last time I saw cool cousin Brent ran into him at the show. Um, and you know, uh, musically for me, there's a lot of it that doesn't, there's a lot of it that doesn't work for me as far as on an emotional level of the music moving me. Um, and a lot of that's because of the tempos, but that's just the way it is. It's the, there's plenty of it that I really did enjoy. The scene was a blast seeing so many old friends running into crazy cousin Brent, you know, just all that kind of stuff. Um, I had a blast. Somebody asked me about this the other day. They were writing a, a thesis on the dead, and they asked me about the dead and company thing. And, you know, it's not everybody's cup of tea. Some people think it's the greatest thing out there. I think the most important thing to remember is you got guys that are damn near 80 years old who are the, who are the original guys who were doing this, and they're still out there doing it. And let's just, whether we love the music or whether it's too slow for you, or let's just be grateful that they're here. I'm so thankful that, you know, my boys who are now between 20 and 30 can still go out and see these guys, you know, and see them. And I, like I say, I saw Phil last October at the Capitol theater, What the guy's 82 years old. They were playing three and a half hour shows. Yeah. Yeah. And back in the, we were talking about the tempos, but back, I guess it was in, it was in February, I guess we were at the Warfield in San Francisco and Bobby came out to play with us. And, uh, Usually when Bobby comes out to play with us, it's happened quite a few times. Usually he just shows up right before the show, or if he's going to play in the second set, he shows up at set break, and we just wing it. And that's great. It's always been great, and, and it always comes out fine. But this time he came down in the afternoon. You know, we rehearsed for a while. <clears throat> we played three or four or five songs. I don't remember. But after one of them, he looked back at me and Dino, or he looked at the whole band, I guess, in general. He goes, I know this is probably a little bit slower than where you're used to playing it, but it's just what works for me right now. This is where this is where it feels good to me. Right. It's your song. We'll play it any way you want. <laughs> yeah. You know, so my, my immediate question was, okay, do you feel like we're pushing you? You know, me and Dino, do, we, do you feel like we're pushing you to make it go faster? Because we don't want to do that to him. If this is where he wants it, 
it's hard to play some of those songs at a slower tempo. But if these, if this is where he wants to play it, then you better damn well do it. So it's okay. Yeah, totally, man. Yeah, we're fine. Do you feel like we're pushing you though? He's like, no, it's great. And then when we came out for the show, they were still slower than we're accustomed to, but they were faster than they were at rehearsal because the adrenaline's working sure. now. You know, so it was a great night. It was, I mean, anytime we get to play with Bob and is always fun, but to, anytime we get to play with any of them is always fun. But to have them play and then smile and want to do it again and play another song, you know, that's doesn't get any better than that for what we're doing. You know, as a St. Louis guy, did you hear the story about the 1971 bar mitzvah at the airport? Uh, at the airport, yeah. Who was telling me? Like Andy Brown or somebody told me they had friends that were there. I, we we interviewed the guy who was the lead guitar player for the high school band that was playing that day. We had him on our show a while back. It was it was a Ladue bar mitzvah. Why not? It was a Ladue group, group. Yeah, it was yeah. a Ladue bar mitzvah. A guy named Randy Gerber, I want to say, or something like that. Yeah, that's it. That which they were playing it, and the dead stumbled in, and, and this guy he he was a, a a bass player when he's like Phil came up to him and talked to him about playing the bass for twenty minutes. He's like I couldn't believe it, you know. They were just hanging out in the lobby and filtered in. Yeah, well, they're all fucked up after the show. I'm sure they just wanted to party, or it might have been a night off. Who knows? Back in those days, they were partying every day. So. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a great story. That made the you know I was it, I heard about it, and then someone posted about it on Facebook, and then Andy Brown and some other friends of mine, the older guys from Ladue. And then the next week, there was an article about it in the Jewish Light. Yes, I saw that. Yep, good old Jewish Light, St. Yep. Louis Jewish newspaper, man. They're always on it. Yep. Hey, um, I want to switch for a minute, and I want to talk about your podcast, uh, The Music Plays the Band. Oh, thank you. And um, Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I, I cool cousin Brent turned me on to it. And what I love about it is your access to, you know, some of these people who, you know, will come on and talk with you. I mean, you know, like I, Big Steve. I mean, you know, I, I maybe I idolize Big Steve more than is good for me, you know. But I just see him as this guy who's like the the caretaker of the Jerry Flame right now, and all of this kind of stuff. And he's got amazing stories. And um, but him or you know any of the guys in the band, tell me about how it started and you know where you're going with it. Right on. And then I will then I'll tell you a Big Steve story because there was something interesting with that one. Please. When I got one. Anyway, so we're we're all sitting home on the break, you know, the break, the self the. Uh, the, the, the pandemic when we didn't have a choice, we had to sit at home. So I wanted to stay connected with the fans. Um, so I just started doing this thing on Facebook live where I would just come on and let fans ask questions in the comments section. And I would have a drink and shoot the shit and answer them. And, uh, somebody said, you should bring a guest with you on my publicist said, you should bring a guest after I'd done two or three. So I brought Jeff or I brought Keller Williams to the first as my first guest. And couple weeks later, I called up my buddy Jeff Kameni, and I brought Jeff. Your buddy. I love that. You know, Jeff, Jeff and I, we play a lot of golf together. He's a good guy. We're both golfers. And then for the third one, I decided I'll call Bill Walton. And so I had Bill come on. Um, and so I had these three question and answers with you know people asking questions again, but asking me to ask Keller questions, asking me to ask Jeff questions. Or with Walton, you don't get to do anything. He just talks. Right. Um, kind, of, kind of like Big Steve. Um they just go, which is great. So uh, a couple of my buddies here in St. Louis, David and Jeff Lazaroff, who have a, a band here, and said, you should turn this into a podcast. And I said, what's a podcast? Because I really didn't know. Um, so that was the genesis of it. And, you know, we just decided that, hey, musicians, there's so many musicians out there, whether they're in the Grateful Dead circles or outside of the traditional Grateful Dead circles that have been influenced by the Grateful Dead. You know, people you might not expect. Bob Crawford, the bass player from the Avid Brothers, is a huge deadhead. You know, he's playing in an Americana band going boom, 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 boom. And he's a huge deadhead. So that's how it started. 
And at the beginning, I just started calling people in my phone, you know, the people that I had, you know, okay, yeah, hey, I'll call Comenti, see if he'll do one, you know, I'll, I'll call Donna, I'll see if she'll do one. And all these people were way into it, you know, and they loved coming on and being able to tell their story about how they got into the dead and, and first their musical upbringing and how they got into the dead and why they got into the dead and how it influenced their playing over the years and, and their careers, not just musically, business-wise, just all kinds of stuff. And it just kind of took off, man. And I've, I've done 35 episodes. I have to admit, I'm on a little bit of a hiatus right now just because we're all working again for the first time in two years. We're working steadily. So summer is not a good time for, A, me be able to sit by the computer and put them out, and B, get guests who have time to sit there like I'm doing right now. You know, I mean, I'm home on a break right now, but I'm home right now. David Hidalgo from Los Lobos, he and I have been trying to get together to do one for months. But I'm home right now, but they're on the road, you know, so everybody's working this summer. So hopefully by the end of the summer, I'll start putting episodes out again. It's been it's been about a month since I put one out, but it's just been great. And where do people find it? Everywhere. It's 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 everywhere. It's you know, any podcast. Uh, it's it's put out by a group called the Pantheon Podcast Network. It has like 70 plus music podcasts that they put out. Um, but you can find it on any podcast. Uh, what do they call it? I don't know. Directory, player whatever you want to call them, Apple, Stitch, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, it's everywhere. And it, it's been a blast, you know. Um, I've learned a ton about, you know, hearing, hearing like I had Larry Campbell and Teresa Williams on together, you know, and, and, and Larry was into the dead back in the 70s when he was studying with Reverend Gary Davis and, and learning all the blues stuff and knew the dead. His wife, Teresa, had never heard the dead until she played with Phil Lesh. <laughs> you know, so two incredibly different approaches and, and, and ways that they got into the dead. And now they both love it, but they came to it from such different paths. You know, that was really, but they're married. No, that was just really interesting to me. Stuff like that, you know, hearing, hearing Yorma say to me, if it wasn't for riding around in the station wagon with Garcia, I'd still be playing acoustic in a coffee shop because Garcia is the one who told me I had to start playing electric, you know? So it's just, it's been really, really cool to hear some of this stuff. Oh, I mean, right. That's like, you know, the idle chatter of, you know, before anybody was famous and, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for that, you know, as is my co-host Rob, I, I read all the books and when I buy, I buy all the Dave's picks because just so I could read the liner notes, you know, the little descriptions they put in, that's where you learn so much of this stuff. And it's just so cool but, you know, what a great opportunity for you, you know, to just to be able to meet with some of these people. Uh, who who would you say is the the, the drummer, uh, let's say, besides Billy and, and uh, Mickey, who's had the biggest impact on you as a drummer? Oh, God. Um, you know, I, I have to break that down from different genres because, you know, I mean, and uh, Mickey and Billy, of course, but, you know, drummers are all so different you know a jazz drummer is so different than a rock drummer even though they're all playing groove it's just a very different sound it's a very different feel it's a very different approach to the instrument so you know on the jazz side growing up i was way into like elvin who billy was into but elvin jones and art blakey and and, and max roach and jack dejanet um on the rock side you know, I'm, I'm a product of the 80s, so Neil Peart was big for me. Stuart Copeland was big for me. You know, um, I, I'm a huge fan of Carter Beaufort from Dave Matthews Band. I think he's awesome. You know, I love the New Orleans thing, so I'm a big fan of what Zigaboo Motolise was doing and Mean Willie Green with the Nevilles and now today Stanton Moore and Johnny Vodakovich, you know. So there's just, I mean, 
you can learn something from every single drummer out there, even if it's learning what not to do. Sure. We mentioned New Orleans. I was just there this past weekend. Uh, one of my good buddies, A. Well, who's a friend of the show, turned 60. And I was telling people, it's, it's like you have to think back when you were in junior high school and it was bar mitzvah year. And every weekend you had a bar mitzvah to go to. Now everybody's turning 60. But what we realized, it's our first milestone with kids out of the house. So we can actually travel and go do. So we've been going everywhere. But for my buddy Alex's birthday, we were all down in uh, New Orleans and we saw a private radiator show at Tipitina Saturday night. That's such a rarity these days. And it was just, you know, and even there, I, I, I blank on the drummer's name, but he's amazing. And he was great all night. And it was just, you know, I, it, there's that whole New Orleans sound that I just love. And they, they, they bring it into rock and roll and everything. And it's just, it's a wonderful place. New Orleans. I mean, you know, growing up, once I discovered the whole New Orleans thing and, and heard Dr. John for the first time and heard the Nevels for the first time. And then that takes you back to Professor Longhair and all that stuff. I mean, there's just, and, and then going to the brass bands, you know, and there's just something butt moving about New Orleans music. It just makes you go, you know? Oh, and and my wife and I were down there in 89 or 90 with my parents for something. And it was time when cool cousin Brent was in law school down there. And so we, we touched base with him and he came and picked us up at the hotel at one o'clock in the morning. And my father was, what are you doing? We're going out. Don't worry. And he drove us over to the Maple Leaf and we saw the meters. There you go at the Maple Leaf. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and it just, I, I had never seen the meters before. And all of a sudden there was this whole other sound of music that I was turned on to. Yeah. I've seen, I've, I've seen the meters before, but not there. I've seen George Porter at the Maple Leaf quite a few times with George Porter and friends or the running partners or just hook them to the Maple Leaf and just sit in with people. Cause he just loves to play too, you know? Um, yeah, I'm in the Maple Leaf. That's such a great place. We saw the meters at Jazz Fest at a, at a late night show a couple of years ago, you know, and true to their form, they came on at two in the morning and George Porter had the line of the night because he said, sorry to make y'all waiting, but at this, at, at this age, uh, it takes a little while longer to get that pre-show piss out or something like that. <laughs> I got a great picture back here somewhere when I, you know, when I got to play with him, the, the pictures on the wall somewhere back there the first time I played with him. It was like at a jam, on a jam cruise. I'm like, oh my god, I'm playing with the godfather of funk bass. This, I mean, this it doesn't get any better than this, you know. And since then, I've had the opportunity to play with him a few times. But what's really strange is like playing dead songs with him, you know, because he's played with Billy now and he's done all the the, the Bill, Billy and Friends and all that. So you know, you think of him as the meters guy. Let's just funk it up. And now here we are. We're playing Sugary, and he's singing it. That's such a departure from what you expect and what you know of George Porter. Um, and it's all great, man. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the long answer to who my influences in drumming were. That's, that's, that's very cool. Let me ask you this. Um, feel free not to answer, but you know, we are the deadhead cannabis show. Um, you know, will you guys uh, get a buzz on before you go on stage? You know, it's, it, it's different now and we're all different. Um, I was thinking about this cause I had a feeling it would come up back when I started in this band and mind you, I'm 53 now. When I started in the band, I was 31. So big difference between 30 and 50. When I started yep. in this band and we were all much younger, I remember crew coming into venues and crews saying, we've never seen a band that smokes as much weed as you guys do. I mean, we had a road case for our bong. It was just, it was out of control. It was just all day, every day, you know, but because we could. Um, and then as time went on, it changed a little. Um, some members changed and some of the new members maybe at that time, you know, we've gone through members might not be big smokers. Um, 
or in these days, you know, it's now, now there's more than just smoking, but back then it was, you know, you were, edibles and vaping and all that wasn't around, you know, and dabs and all these other forms of ways to get high now, you know, it was you smoke your flower and you're done. So as time has gone on, I mean, are there guys in the band who still light a big fatty before they go on stage? Yes. I think they're more in the minority now. Um, for me personally, I don't smoke before I go on stage anymore. And it wasn't a conscious decision. I just got to the point where, um, to be completely honest, I started having some anxiety. You know, I think it was a combination of maybe being a little bit higher than I should be to keep the band in check because it's a big job being the drummer. And then the bigger the venues got, the brighter the lights got, and the heavier the bass got. And all these things combined just made it not work for me the way that it used to. You know, and then I found out as time went on, you know, I'll have a drink. I won't get drunk, but I'll have a cocktail to relax. And then as time went on, I found out that I don't need to be super high anymore to get to those places improvisationally. I can still find those spaces, maybe differently and maybe not the same spaces, but spaces that musically and spiritually take me to that place without being stoned. Um, and there's no more anxiety. Now, having said that, as soon as I come off stage and the show's over, the first thing I do is smoke a bowl and relax. But, you know, and it just, it just changed for me over the years, you know, as I got older, it just, it just changed, you know? Of course. Absolutely. Um, but I, I like that about how you, you can get to the music. When we first started seeing shows, you know, I, I it may have been my 10th or 11th or 12th show before I finally saw a show where I wasn't tripping. And at the first, I was a little bit nervous about that. I'm like, so much of this is this. And early on, I, I always felt like I was missing something out. But, you know, by the end, and, you know, I now I'm married. I have kids. My life's going in a different direction than what it was. I'm not yeah. free-forming with, you know, window pane all the time. Um, but I found a, a place at the Dead Shows where I go and I have a great time. And I get to that place, maybe not quite as high, but still – and it, 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 you don't need the LSD or the mushrooms to get you there anymore. And that's kind of a cool thing. It, it's great, you know, and it, it makes you think of, it, first of all, it helps you relate to the wharf rats and the sober people a whole lot better and see that it's true. You don't need it. Yes. You know, I, I just think, to be completely honest, because your story is kind of has some parallels to mine. I think part of it is just a part of getting older, you know, we're getting, you get older, things change a little bit. Not, not, nece- not necessarily for better or for worse. You change. And, and you know, you mentioned wharf rats who, I was always impressed with because, you know, to be there in the middle of everything that's going on and have that willpower and stay together. But, you know, I, I but if we're going to talk about that and, and I, I'm going to give this shout out and I've done it before and he knows there's nothing in the world that my cool cousin Brent has done more than uh, I think he's going on his eighth or ninth year now of sobriety. And, and he's, he's just amazing. And I sit down and talk with him about it. And, you know, Brent was always a guy who, you know, got to great places on his own anyway, which is why I always loved him. And, uh, but, you know, to see that and, and the dedication and the determination that these people have is just amazing. Yeah, well, he's addicted to the bike now. That's what, that's his drug. Well, that, you know? that's a healthy addiction, I think, most for the most part, depending on where you ride. And he rides in crazy places. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, way back in the 80s, I mean, when we were working together at summer camp, we were parting our asses off together. You know, as soon as the kids went to bed, we were outside of camp straight to the bar under 21, me and Brent, you know, partying hard. And it was fun back in those days. Things change again. Sure. You know, I worked at a summer camp and one summer in, up in Wisconsin. And uh, the guy who ran the radio station had its own little booth, like in one corner of the camp. 
And he had it all set up in there. A whole group of us would go in there on Friday night before the Friday night services. And he had a bong. We'd sit there. We, I, I, They must have known because the place was hot boxed up like a mess. <laughs> but we were having a great time with the kids. You know, it was camp and everybody was having a great time. Yeah. My kid's away at summer camp right now, actually. And my kids just finally outgrew it the last couple of years. But yeah, it was summer camp was great. I really loved it. Yeah. I got a late start. I have a, five, a six-year-old and an 11-year-old. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little behind most of the guys my age. Most of the cats my age are going to, their kids are going to college. That's okay. That's a beautiful age, man. They're great. That's fantastic. Let me, um, do they listen to the dead? Do they like the dead? Yeah. You know, certainly. I mean, they both love monkey and the engineer, of course. Um, (laughs) you know, everybody loves monkey and the engineer. I I got it. I completely honest. Um, I don't play a whole lot of it for them. I mean, they like it and they know it. Um, but when I'm off the road, I don't listen to a ton of the grateful dead anymore. If that's one thing. The, probably the biggest negative of my gig is it's a lot harder for me to listen to the Grateful Dead for enjoyment. And that doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. But when I start listening now, it's almost, I just, I study. You know, and I, I key in again on, on what Jer- what Mickey's doing or whatever. So when I'm off the road, I really don't listen to a ton of, a ton of it anymore, you know? So when... Rob Korge goes home at night at the end of a long day and you just need to unwind and relax. What music do you put on? You know, I I don't listen to it. I mean, most of the music I listen to is in my car, Um, you know, and I'll just say my XM radio presets are 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. I like all that. You know, I'll go back and listen to doo-wop. My kids love doo-wop, so we listen to the doo-wop. Beatles channel, uh, the, the channels 26 and 27, the Dave Matthews channel, uh, channel 49, which is Motown and soul. I listen to that a lot. Um, uh, Will, Willie's roadhouse, old traditional country. None of this new crap that's out there, you know, that they call country now. So my tastes are very, are, are really varied. New Orleans. We talked about the only things I really don't like are new country and really, really heavy, heavy, distorted guitar music, you know, the heavy metal and stuff. And I'm just not, the thick, heavy guitar, but I like everything, you know? I mean, I grew up listening to everything. I mean, I played Broadway shows, you know, I've done it. I've done played opera theater. I've done it all. So I've listened to everything. I like it all. That's amazing. That's amazing. You know, you guys, I mean, I guess just by the fact that you've been out there for so long, you're, you're kind of now senior members of the jam band scene. (laughs) I'm senior a lot of things now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're only, you're still in your fifties, buddy. Let me tell you. We've been out there a long time. Um, Yes. Yeah, but but who do you see? Uh, first of all, do you keep in touch with the new jam band scene, and who do you see as the next big bands that are going to really step in? I know everybody talks about Goose. Yeah, I mean, I've seen Goose a few times, and 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 they're really good. Um, there's a lot of good. I mean, Billy Strings is kick ass, man. That guy's awesome. Uh, you know, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, it's hard. We don't get to see a lot of it unless when we're at festivals. Um, it's, it's hard to, I'm sure it was like this for people, the generation above us, but it's hard to listen to a lot of the jam bands without comparing them to other jam bands, you know, and say, Oh yeah, that's a poor man's fish. Oh, that's a poor man's widespread panic. You know, it's hard to do that, but there's obviously there's some really good shit out there. Goose is blowing up. I think they're really good. You know, that's probably one of them that is, is one of the better ones in my book. Um, are you a fish fan? I am not, not like I am the dead. You know, I've seen 
been to 30 or 40 fish shows for sure. Um, Have you met John Fishman? Oh, yeah. Is he as crazy as he seems? Yeah, minimum. He's awesome. He's super cool, man. You know, and, and whenever our paths cross with Gore, with Mike Gordon, he'll come and sit in because he loves to play. So he's, Mike's played with us quite a few times. Fishman sat in with us before I was in the band. Um, but yeah, I've, 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 uh, I've spent not, not a whole lot of time, but a couple occasions with, with Fishman over the years. One was a late night poker game, which was a lot of fun. Um, uh, oh, that's great. You know, he's, he's just like one of those larger than life drummers out there, like a Keith Moon, you know, somebody whose personality is just everywhere, but not in a bad way. I, I mean, I really like him and I think he's a tremendous drummer. He's one of those drummers that the first time I saw him, my, I was in an original band here in St. Louis and my bandmate, one of them was a fan. He dragged me to the American theater. Remember that place? Um, dragged me to the American theater. It was like 92, 93. I don't know. They've released it as like one of their dicks picks. That's those shows. And we went and saw them and I walked out of that show with my jaw on the floor wanting to quit playing the drums. He was fucking awesome. And I couldn't fully grasp how awesome he was because I couldn't fully comprehend some of the stuff he was doing. I mean, just next level shit. He's a killer drummer, just killer. And yeah, he uh, definitely had an influence on me for a while there too, you know. And he's the rare drummer who sings. Very true. Very true. You know, he's he's just a super nice Jewish guy like us, right? You know, he's just right? he's just a cool. He's John's a really really cool guy. Wonderful. That's good to hear. You know, you know, to me, I, I never had time for fish when I was following the dead. And then when Jerry died, I was already you know married with kids and I didn't really have time to dive back in. But somewhere 15 years ago, a buddy of mine took me to see a fish show and I thought, okay, this is fine. And I saw a few more over the years, but then my kids who hated all the dead I played finally got into them themselves, but realized Jerry's dead. So they dove headlong into fish. Right. So we're, you know, we're all, now we have family events. We'll go up to Alpine Valley in August and see fish and, it's good fun. That's awesome. You know, I, 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 I love, love, love fish. Um, I'll go to them, you know, I won't travel huge distances to see them, but the one thing, the big difference for me, you know, musically they improv like better than anybody, maybe even the dead, you know, just the way they can take it and go. The biggest difference for me is the lyrics, you know, the grateful dead wrote lyrics that to live your life by and fish. Run like an antelope out of control? No, that's not what... How about fairly well let your life proceed by its own design? I'll go with that. You know, so lyrically, it didn't grab me the way the dead did. Oh, yeah. And that's a huge thing. Um, but but I I mean, musically, it's, they're, they're fucking but awesome. I was the same way yeah. as you. The first couple of times I would go, you know, when you... I mean, just these crazy lyrics, right? And you're like, what the hell are they even saying? And it, it, it was distracting till I learned to stop listening to the lyrics and just listen to the music. And that I, I see for them, like the lyrics is just kind of like a place keeper as they go along and they build up the tempo of the song, just something to throw in there. For sure. it's it, The lyrics serve a very different role in that band than they did in The Dead. I think that's a really good way to put it. It's a really, very good but, way to put you it. Know, for me, I see also a big part of that is if you got Robert Hunter writing lyrics for you, you know, that's a whole different world. Yeah, there's only so many of those guys out there, that's for sure. And, and Barlow, you know, I mean, Barlow doesn't quite get the credit he deserves probably because he wrote the size of his canon isn't nearly as big you know it's a much smaller playlist but i mean he's in, another one of the greatest songwriters ever yep. would be john perry Barlow. unbelievable unbelievable that's yeah. it's just good stuff all the way around um i'm sorry we never got a chance to listen to these other musical clips i had i, I had a whole bunch of them i had really good intentions i really wanted to play not just the uh 
uh, Egypt, Hamza El-Din, uh, Olin Aragid. But Rob and I always argue over uh, like the great dead transitions. And my favorite dead transition of all time is that Egypt show where they transition out of fire on the mountain into Iko Iko. That's a pretty good one. That's a good choice. And the, in fact, Dan, I think, you know what? Let's just play this one really fast before we go. Isn't that great that's 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 phenomenal and that's 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 so good and that's just right that's the first time that era right there is when Ico's just starting to pick up tempo because like those first Ico's in 77 i think the first one they played might have been at the st louis arena those are just not fade away slinky dirty second line new orleans slow i love those Ico's. you know i love them all but i really love when we do those old school slow Ico out of drums you know, and this is out of that same kind of vein, but it's just starting to pick up a little tempo. It's just starting to pick up a little bit. Not quite where it gets to in the early 80s and later, but it's it's on its way. Right. But it's just, you know, all of a sudden, just that one single drum beat keeping the whole thing moving for a minute. And it's it just with, oh, I, I love it. And that's completely unplanned. You know, it just worked. It just happened. You know, the next night, it might have tried something similar and it didn't work. You know, it just depends. You know, that's the beauty of this kind of music. You know, I, it's so cliche because they even named an album after it, but you're literally, you're, you're flying without a net, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Right. It's beautiful. And, and, and that's, I think, you know, for me, ultimately what brought me in that direction, if you saw Ario Speedwagon two nights in a row, you saw the exact same show two nights in a row. And maybe it was fun the first night, but not the second night. Yeah. And, you know, people couldn't understand how I go see so many dead shows. I'm like, just go and see it. You'll see what I'm talking about. It, it's unlike, it's unstructured. They just, I, I don't even know how many songs they play. It's just, they're out there and doing their yeah, thing. People ask me how you can play in a band that plays like this, you know, plays the same songs, a cover band and all that. And I said, I couldn't. This is the only band I could do that with because it's different every time. I could never play in an REO Speedwagon cover band and play the same song the exact same way every night. I'd go, ugh. No chance. Although I will tell you that Trey changed not only mine, but my wife's opinion of Boston forever when they did that Boston cream donut thing. And he played more than a feeling in the sunshine of your love into it's been such a long time. Like if Trey Anastasio is playing it, that's okay for me. It's still Boston. <laughs> I, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. But man, if, if Trey's picking it up and running with it. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. You know, some of those, some of that stuff. I haven't listened to Boston in a long time. Maybe some of that stuff has evolved in my musical palette over time. I should give it another try. You only heard it on classic rock so much when you're a kid. You can't 
listen to more than a feeling on KC more, you know, any more than you already have. Right. Oh my God. That's so funny. <laughs> the KC pig. Yep. Sweet meat. Right. From back in the day. No, that was it. I saw the who at the arena in 1980. Was it 80 or 81? That was the same. It was coming off that December. They had had the big thing in Cincinnati and my parents weren't going to let me go, but they did it by, it was the first time I ever did anything by mail order. They did everything. They had a mail order. They were doing everything to avoid lines. Right, right, right. But I went to the show with a couple of my buddies and that, that changed my life musically forever. I guess I, mine would have been the next year when I saw them and, and I was like seventh or eighth grade in 81 at the arena. And it was their, their first farewell tour sponsored by Schlitz and Kenny Jones with the big arch and behind him and the symbol hanging off of it as the drummer. Yeah. But you know that when I saw the Rolling Stones in 1981 in Philadelphia for the first uh, show of their start me up tour and a whole bunch of us went, they came out and they first song was under my thumb and they come, Oh my God, these guys sound so old. Oh my God, these guys are done. 40 years later, right? It's just, it's it's unbelievable. I love it. Yeah, it's crazy to think Mick Jagger is my father's age and gets out and jumps around the stage like that. It's absolutely unbelievable. More power to those guys. Do it as long as they can. Right. It's it's yeah. it's just a miracle. It's, it's amazing and it's great with all of them. Um, Rob, you know, you're a great guest, which means I could be sitting here talking to you all day and, and just forget about the time. I know. I wish I could stay longer, but I have to get to the I have to get to the J and have a meeting. I, I understand, and um, I've 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 been over to the J many a time myself. So hopefully, uh, you have a good time over there. But um, uh, once again, just for people who may have missed it the first time around, uh, tell p- people where and how they can find uh, the music plays the band. Just wanted to just head right on over to www.themusicplaystheband.net, and that'll give you everything you need. I appreciate you letting me talk about it. Thank you. Absolutely. And if people write in, do you respond? I always do. Wonderful. Even better. Always. There's a place there you can email me. There's a place to sign up on a mailing list. Um, I do have a Patreon campaign that goes on if you want a little extra content. Um, so, yeah, check it out. You can check it all out there. I have a blog. haven't written an entry lately, but... Uh, <laughs> It's hard to keep up with that stuff once you start touring again. Hey, um, I hear you, man. But there's there's a lot of good stuff there. And for those of you who haven't heard any of it, no, I'm not putting out any episodes right now, but there's 37 of them there waiting for you to listen to. And just based on some of you who your guests are, I would say for anybody interested in this world, that's mandatory listening. So There's a lot of good guests from the Grateful Dead world. And let's see, there's got three members of Dead & Company here on there. Um, a lot of guys from the Bluegrass world, a lot of guys – that you might not expect to see it on there. You know, the guitar player from the New Bohemians, the drummer from the Spin Doctors, the keyboard player from the Disco Biscuits, just all different kinds of, you know, different genres that are covered in there. So a lot of good guests. Wonderful. Excellent. We will check it out. Thank you again for your time today. We really appreciate it. Special shout out again to Cousin Brent. Thank you for setting this up. You're the best. I owe you one the Way next go, time Brent I'm in town. And the next time, time I'm in town with Cousin Brent, Rob, I'm going to, Try and look you up. I would love to get together. Yeah, let's get together. I would really enjoy that. That'd be nice. That would be a lot of fun. Thank you. My pleasure. I had a good time today. Thanks for having me. Our, no, our pleasure all the way. And we will be glad to have you back sometime in the future and hear more about what's going on with the podcast and everything else. That would be a lot of fun for us. So to all of our listeners, uh, this was way off the normal track today. We didn't get to any of the marijuana stories. We didn't get to listen to any of the other dead clips. But quite frankly, when you have a guest like Rob Quartz, who the hell has time for that other stuff? So I hope you all don't mind. We did talk a little bit about the marijuana, but I hope you all don't mind. Nope. And just because we can't just walk away with that without ignoring it. Um, on our way out the door, we are going to play a clip. And it's a clip that I picked from Roosevelt Stadium on today's date. 
1972. So we're listening to music that's 50 years old. Um, it's Sing Me Back Home. I'm inspired because I just saw Dead & Company play it the other night. I always love that tune. And um, I think it's a great way to go out. Me too. I love playing that tune. So thanks again to Rob Koritz. Thanks to Dan Humiston, my producer. Rob Hunt will be back next week. Uh, Tim Seymour from uh, NBC News or CNBC News will be our guest. And he has some interesting things to talk about as well. Uh, so everybody, uh, enjoy your summer. Have fun. Stay safe. And uh, enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you very much. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.